my name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not a part of the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I am also autistic. This is our 11th episode, Building a Neurodiverse Workforce, Part 2. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. So here are some news and updates about the foundation. We had our latest family fun night on this past Friday, February 12th, where we watched Frozen and set up multiple activities themed around Valentine's Day and winter. Activities like heart ice cube painting and an ice hockey shootout. We usually try having these events on Friday evenings once a month, so make sure to contact Kelly Coots, our rec supervisor, to find out more. Our uh, hashtag WeAreFoodies, W-E-R-F-O-O-D-I-E-S, food service program, finished their latest cohort. In celebration of the different crew members who have made it all possible, we've chosen to spotlight the shining stars in our midst on a weekly basis via our Facebook page, which is gonna be on our show notes. Make sure to check the link for updates, especially on what happens next. We would also like to thank Jim Hogan again for being interviewed on part one of our Building a Neurodiverse Workforce series, promoting our upcoming virtual conference, which will be held on Friday, March 12th and Saturday, March 13th. For a preview of what's to come, here are a few speakers that we will have. The Honorable Mike Lake, member of the Canadian Parliament for Edmonton, what's the ski one? And if I messed it up, well, I, I should be uh, put out to pasture. But it's always good to have a politician who understands the needs of our community. Thomas Derry, COO slash co-founder of Rising Tide Car Wash. Also our special guest today and quite possibly a friend of the show. Jose Velasco, Chief Program Manager, Product Engineering and Autism at Work Ambassador, SAP, an inspiration to many an employer. The dear Temple Grandin, PhD, Professor, Department of Animal Science, Colorado State University, the Grand Dom of Autism and quite possibly the most well-known self-advocate. Haley Moss, attorney, author, artist, and autism advocate, the first openly autistic lawyer in Florida history, and of course, Mr. Ernie, the Big Easy Ls, and Mrs. Liesel Ls themselves will be giving the speech welcoming us all to the conference. But I will be in there in active capacity too. As chair of the advisory board, I've worked a little behind the scenes when it comes to our Inside Scoop segment, where we have matched up the members with a wide variety of advocates, which will be from 12.15 to 1 p.m. on day one of the conference. After that day ends, a wide variety of our clients will get involved with a social activity 
which will be co-hosted by one of our great job coaches, Ms. Loden Malone, and our rec supervisor, Mrs. Kelly Coots. On the very next day, Haley Moss, Ron Sanderson, Jim Hogan, and I will be on a panel called In the Trenches, Employment Experiences from Employees with ASD Covering Hiring, Accommodations, and Equity in the Performance Feedback Process, which will be about our experiences in the job world and what we've learned. So I will also showcase the link to where you can get your tickets and make sure to get them as soon as you possibly can. If you register, you will get a lot of benefits like a day and a half of applicable, applicable content for whatever stage of neurodiverse hiring your business is in. Enjoy keynotes by renowned thought leaders from industry, government, and academia. Experience breakout panels, Q&As, and a post-conference session. You will also receive our employer toolkit, which will include our very own Else for Autism employer guide, our employer training videos, our Else for Autism job coach manual, our creative visual supports, our job development client slash employment training videos. You'll get free access to Rising Tide Use course, the Autism Advantage, which is valued at $495. Lastly, professionals can elect to earn credits for SHRM or SHRM, CESP, APC or APSC, CRCC. It's been fascinating watching all this come together. I hope to see you there. One. Okay, so our interview for today. What was the expression, change begins at home? Well, since we are headquartered here in South Florida, there are a few things more representative of that saying than the Rising Tide Car Wash brand which has employed a great number of employees through its location south of us in Parkland and Margate, and with a third location opening up in Coral Springs. Today, we have the co-founder of the brand, Mr. Thomas Sterry. Did I pronounce your last name right? You got it, Merrick. Okay. One of our keynote speakers for the conference and a Ford 30 under 30 profile for our special guest. Okay. So the first question that uh, should be asked is to please talk about the impact that employment opportunities with Rising Tide has had on your brother and others who have worked at one of the locations. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that is a, that varies um, for each of our employees, but in, in broad strokes, um, we probably we've got two broad groups of individuals with autism that work with us. Um, you have folks like my brother who um, have uh, an intellectual disability who uh, will likely be employed with us for, for a long period of time. This is kind of becomes home for them and a place where they can, can spend a, a large portion of their career with us. Um, and then we've got our team members who um, may not have a, as um, significant intellectual um, challenges. Uh, and this becomes much more of a first job opportunity uh, where they learn the skills necessary to move forward in their career, whether with us or um, at a, a different 
business. So uh, we've had many employees kind of learn, you know, come here right out of high school, right when they're transitioning from high school. And, uh, you know, they learn how to, how to get to work on time, how to take feedback, how to work hard, how to be professional and stay calm under pressure. Uh, and then they take those skills and they move on to other jobs. So we've had team members move on to a variety of other local businesses, um, Home Depot, uh, Walmart, Jersey Mike's, um, a bunch more that I'm, I'm failing to remember at this moment. <laughs> um, but that's kind of the idea of, in about 75% of our employees when they leave us, either move on to another job or to higher education. Uh, so while we are very much a family and have a family vibe, well, when, when people work with us, we do also very much encourage that our employees kind of experience as many different job opportunities as they can. Okay, um, so I know that this may come out of left field to ask this, but why a car wash? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so we looked at a bunch of different businesses um, and what we were looking for uh, was that a business that we felt could employ people with autism for the majority of its staff. We had a very early on set uh, the goal of 80% of our employees being on the autism spectrum. That was um, you know, kind of our guiding light goal as we went through the business ideation uh, and research and development phase. Uh, so we looked at a bunch of different businesses that we thought um, could, could successfully employ lots of people with autism. We also wanted to a business that could um, really communicate uh, simply to the local community as well as more broadly how capable people with autism uh, are. Because as we did our research, it became really apparent really quickly um, that the, the biggest inhibiting factor for um, employment opportunities for people with autism, uh, it, it's a perception issue. It has nothing really to do with, um, with abilities or skills or desire to work. Uh, it has pretty much everything to do with the fact that most employers uh, and most people Kind of look at autism as uh, something that requires sympathy instead of a valuable diversity. So uh, we wanted a business that we felt could really communicate that, um, that counter message. And we really liked the car wash, uh, kind of hitting both of those things uh, that, you know, there's a, each store employs a lot of people with autism. It can employ a lot of, you know, it has a, a large employment base in general. It's very structured work detail-oriented work, uh, which many people with autism can kind of thrive in that uh, routine operation. Uh, and it is a very tangible service. So customers come through, uh, they either get a good car wash or, or not so good car wash. Hopefully they're getting a good car wash from us and they leave knowing that the service was good and it was provided by people with autism. And that helps kind of change the perspective. Um, and, 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 Luckily, it's been it's been successful. Okay, so uh, there's an understanding that you all are planning to open a third location. What are some of your other business goals for 2021? Yeah, so for 2021, we are we are all in 
on um, making our new location successful and building out our organizational infrastructure to be able to grow more aggressively, um, to be able to grow more aggressively beyond that. So that's, um, you know, we were, we're, we built out to, we built out a few new roles, a few new training programs over the last um, six months. We'll continue to do that um, through this year. And uh, we're, you know, it's a, it's a pretty heavy lift to the commercial building process. So uh, we'll be really focused on that through the end of this year. And then next year, we'll start to uh, kind of evaluate uh, next, next growth opportunities from there. Okay. And uh, what are some of your favorite aspects about getting to work with your family? I mean, the, yeah, I have such a closer relationship with my family, um, every family member um, than I otherwise would have. Um, yeah, I think it's natural as, uh, you know, children grow up, they tend to grow a little distant from, from their parents or from their siblings, just kind of the natural course of life. And our business has, has stop that. I mean, we get to, I see my family, talk to my family on a daily basis. We have a united mission. So we're all working towards the same type of thing. When there's adversity, uh, we meet it all together. And, and that's a really special thing. And I mean, particularly with my brother, uh, you know, I think without this business, uh, I wouldn't have much of a relationship with Andrew candidly. Um, you know, we'd, we'd probably see each other on the holidays and stuff. He's not a big phone talker. So I don't think we'd, we'd talk too much on the phone. Uh, and instead of that, you know, he, you know, we, we talk every day, he, you know, he actually is, he's interested in how my day's going. I'm interested in how his day's going. We go, um, we go to universal, uh, when we're not in COVID times. And, uh, you know, we, he comes and stays over with us all the time. It's nice. It's a much, much closer family relationship uh, than we would have had if we didn't have business. That uh, sounds really, really neat. Thanks. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I myself am very close with my family, too. Great. And it's just... It's great to have that kind of support system, especially if you have, you know, special needs or something like that. It's just fantastic to have a support system that is always there for you, no matter where you are in life, no matter what happens, you can always talk to someone, you can always, you know, mentor, motivate someone. It's just, yeah, I, I, I really do value uh close families fun yeah I, I agree i i think that close family relationships along with you know close work relationships and peer relationships and this is the essence of a successful adult life and uh, i think you know absolutely critical to anybody's um anybody's uh kind of um, support structure as an adult Okay, so you're one of our keynote speakers for the virtual conference coming up. Yep. And um, there's a little bit on the website about what you're gonna be talking about. 
So can you give our listening audience a short little preview of your speech? Yeah, so I'm really excited. It's, it's going to be a wonderful conference. Uh, in my um, main, uh, in my keynote, we'll be talking about um, a lot of the things that we've learned uh, throughout the years uh, with Rising Tide Car Wash and uh, how it really, how employing people with autism has really benefited the business and how it can benefit a lot of other organizations. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about the, the ripple effect of how an organization inviting people with autism and neurodiverse people in general in, in can really uh, affect so many aspects of a business in a, in a really positive way. So I'll, I'll share some stories as well as some research uh, and then in my breakout sessions, we dive a little deeper into some of the tools and systems and supports that we use um, to uh, essentially achieve a, a lot of the goals and uh, results that, that I'll talk about in that keynote. Speaking of stories, through your story, what are the key lessons that every employer must know about your experience with Rising Tide? Um, well, so I, I first and foremost, uh, I, I'd say that there, there are four like key uh, behavior, organizational behaviors uh, that can help any organization be more inclusive. And the first is objective hiring practices. So uh, as anybody in the autism community, I think can understand um, there are, you know, so many biases that are in a normal hiring process and just really it's an inaccurate process. Uh, the research has shown that, uh, you know, only 14% of success uh, of the success of candidates can be attributed um, accurately from an interviewer uh, when a typical behavioral interview. Uh, and that makes it really, um, you know, not surprising that over 50% of new hires fail in the first 18 months. And so we've at Rising Tide been able to build a hiring process that's, that's much more accurate and much more um, objectively fair. Uh, and because of that, um, we've been able to not only um, employ lots of people with autism, and, and actually other diversities as well, but everybody, we, our retention rate is about five times better than the industry average. Uh, from there, I think it's critically important for organizations to set really clear objectives, uh, really clear expectations. Uh, we do things like through, you know, we, we can achieve that through really good processes, really good systems, checklists, visual supports. Uh, there's lots of different tools and mechanisms to do this, but the general idea is that organizations need to drive clarity throughout the operation in order to successfully um, empower a diverse talent. Uh, and then also uh, building a developmental culture. So. Uh, there's, you know, many quotes out there that say, you know, you hire for um, attitude and then you train for skill. Uh, 
And that's very true. We, we agree with that. However, you have to build an organizational structure that is designed to develop people. And that's through training and coaching, uh, as well as, you know, building a culture of feedback and, and really good management. Uh, and, and I would say that when you do those two, those things, and then you look at your employees as users of your organizational systems and start to apply a lot of the design thinking that we apply to product design, uh, we start to change the relationship between uh, troubled employees and bosses. Because normally when you have an employee that's not doing a great job, maybe going against the grain a little bit or frustrated or struggling, we look at them as someone who's failing. But when we look at them through a lens of designing better organizational systems, their struggles are actually um, really valuable insights for an organization to improve their systems. And when we look at it that way, um, we're able to build a, um, we're able to constantly innovate the way that we, we operate, uh, make work easier and more effective for all of our employees and, and also drive a really great customer experience. So when you do those things, those are, I think, the key things that we've learned operationally growing this business over the last few years. And, and a lot of the successes that we've had can be attributed to those aspects. All right. So since we usually do uh, six questions, um, I thought to myself that I would give you a choice which one you would want to answer the, the most. Okay. So the first one is if you would like to explain about Rising Tide U, or the second one is about if someone wants to open a Rising Tide car wash kind of business in their area, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, I would say that those are probably the same answer to both of those questions. <laughs> um, so... We founded Rising Tide U out of the um, just so many people reaching out, uh, inspired by our story and wanting to do similar things in their communities. Uh, every time we've been blessed to get some really wonderful media attention and every time we have a viral video or you know, a big media spot, we get you know hundreds of emails um, asking, you know, how do we do that? And, can we, how, how would I do that in my community? And most of the time, those folks aren't necessarily interested in doing a car wash, but really just the general idea of building an organization that would employ people with autism uh, and do that in a successful way. So we founded Rising Tide U to um, provide resources for people exactly on that journey. Uh, and the first thing that we did is we partnered with University of Miami Center for Autism and Related Disabilities uh, and in particularly uh, the executive director there, Dr. Michael Sandry, uh, and built a step-by-step -step course, uh, online course, uh, do it at your own pace, um, to kind of walk someone through that process and de-risk as much as you can the, the entrepreneurial process of starting a business that uh, employees, you know, is purposely built to employ people with autism. And um, actually, we've got very exciting news on that front in that everybody who's registered for the, the, um, the ELS conference will have 
free access to that course. It's normally a $495 course free for everyone who comes to the, uh, comes to the virtual conference. So uh, hopefully people listening to this will, will get the opportunity to, to join that conference and maybe take a look uh, if they're interested at, at um, our curriculum. And um, I'm always also help, happy to try to answer emails though. I will say sometimes it might take a little while to get back to you. Okay, so thank you, Thomas, Derry, for uh, being uh, basically a role model to anyone else in the community who wants to show people that, you know, uh, being different can feel good. So um, I, uh, I'm, I, I really must remark that you're a remarkable individual, no pun intended. And uh, I just like to end this interview by saying that uh, you should definitely at some point find a way to use um, working at the Rising Tide Car Wash as a song for a commercial. <laughs> okay. That I'll would be great. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'm getting into any kind of copyright trouble right now. I don't think but, so. But uh, I think if there's like a way to do, because it's such a, it was such a huge song and you just put in Rising Tide and that's basically what it is. It's, it's a fun family, a happy family and a happy group of people wanting to work. That's right. So anyways, now, as always, it is time to go over Today in the World of Autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinook, and his fantastic research-oriented topics. All right, let's get it started. We will try to match the excitement with these stories that Merrick started us off with uh, in the show as far as that great introduction to our conference on the neurodiverse workforce. So the first, the first story that I'd like to cover is on the topic of a study which was done at Oregon State University, highlighting some interesting trends when it comes to physical activity and autism. This study had uh, a lot of insight on when the most applicable age range is going to be for targeting physical activity programs in individuals with autism. So according to this study, which consisted of 88 children with autism and 88 control participants, the nine to 13 year old age range is the time period when physical activity disparities between individuals with autism and neurotypical individuals reaches its peak. The researchers studied a data set that surveyed these participants at ages 9, 13, and then again at age 17 or 18, and they captured information on various physical activity habits, as well as engagement and screen time, which consisted of either TV, movies, videos, and computer, uh, or video games. While there was not a statistically significant difference in screen time between kids with autism and kids without it, there was a marked disparity in the amount of physical activity, especially in adolescents. At age 13, 
youth with autism reported one or two days of moderate to rigorous physical activity engagement in a two week period compared with nine or more of these days amongst youth with autism. I'm sorry, rather nine or more days amongst individuals without autism. Interestingly, there were no differences in reported moderate to rigorous physical activity at age nine. For clarification, this type of activity was described in this study as that which elicits heavy breathing and an increased heart rate. The decline in activity engagement in the ASD group persisted through age 17 to 18. Again, it, there was the initial disparity at age 13 and it persisted to the next time point, which was at age 17 or 18. And at this point, the average number of days spent engaging in moderate to rigorous activity on average was zero for individuals with ASD compared to six to eight of these days in the control group. So given the established link between moderate physical activity and both physical and mental well-being, this study highlights the importance of introducing not only physical activity training, but also organized sport training opportunities to individuals with ASD, especially in the nine to 13 age range, when according to this study, these disparities in activity are at a peak. At the Ells for Autism Foundation, we offer organized golf, tennis, yoga, and kickball classes for individuals of all ages, led by our outstanding recreational coordinator, Kelly Coots. We've linked our webpage where you can find information on these sport programs in our show notes for today. Merrick, turning this, this topic over to you, could you please talk about some efforts that could be made to make physical activity and sport training more accessible to individuals with autism? Well, so drawing from my personal experiences, I'm surprised that I wasn't included in the study. As old as I am, I have a history which is very much uh, lethargic when it comes to physical activity. Once I was able to not take any required classes for physical fitness in high school, I stopped taking physical fitness classes. And I just never really identified that much as someone who could, who was into anything that physical. And of course, as I grew up, I ballooned to an obese weight size, which I sort of still am now, but I've been trying to lose that kind of weight. I think that one of the things that may make uh, individuals with autism feel very nervous about approaching uh, physical activities or sports is because many of them involve these kinds of social connections that may make them feel very uncomfortable, especially if they feel like if they've been targets of bullying for their social behavior. I, I think that basically, uh, having these different groups where, you know, individuals with autism can play with one another, can do things with one another, 
that is uh, very, very much welcomed. I also think that one shouldn't really say that just because most computer video games involve controllers does not mean that there aren't video games that can't help or that can't do anything regarding physical activity or fitness. One of the games that appeared on the Nintendo Switch market is a game called Ring Fit Adventure. And you basically get this ring and you do all kinds of aerobics on your journey to fight this final boss. And you're, you can go through some very, very, uh, well, strenuous exercises by playing this one game. And of course, we cannot forget about the Wii when it came out, but you know, you, you aren't gonna get the kids today maybe with uh, the Wii from two or three console generations ago. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're going to be on to the new stuff. But Ring Fit Adventure, I think, is, is really, really interesting. It's, it's for all ages, and it's gotten some fantastic reviews. So if your kid doesn't identify as someone who is physical or athletic, um, even when I was thin, it took me three hours to run a mile. So I am not kidding when I have to tell you that my stamina is very low. Everything about me is not physical. But however, if you're able to get a hold of something like Ring Fit Adventure, which does not sponsor this podcast, by the way, um, (laughs) or anything else that involves motion controls, movement, Uh, Any fitness software, especially for a Nintendo console like the Switch, um, you know, there may be some value in that. Plus, you won't have to, you know, risk uh, getting COVID or spreading COVID. Um, but, But I think that you just have to research and find out what it is that that person is interested in and then link that up to something physical, some kind of physical activity. If the person loves Disney World, well, then you basically set a goal to go walking for, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes to get to Disney World. So you've got to, it's like I say all the time, you've got to manage and motorize around the person's interests in order to get someone deeply engaged. I I mean, I I serve as a prime example, not to get back into video games, but certain genres in the whole field were locked to me until Mario became a part of the Mario Brothers, became a part of the genres. So it's it's that. It's basically, if, if you want your kid to be more physical or you want your kid to be, you know, to do sports, then you've got to identify what it is that that kid is interested in or what that person is interested in and find out if there's a way you can link the two. I mean, maybe the kid is a sports nut 
loves watching sports, doesn't play sports, but, um, you know, they're really into like uh, Michael Jordan or something like that. So you just have them play basketball and you basically create this role play scenario in which the kid is Michael Jordan. So I want to be like Mike. Yeah. Be like Mike, you know, you could wear the same shoes, um, jump for the hoops, you know, although you probably have to move to Chicago in order to fulfill the Mike dream, you know, if you or and you also have to, what was it, baseball or golf that Michael Jordan played? That's, that's right. A little bit of both. But he played professional baseball for a year. Yeah. So, you know, once you're done being like Mike in the basket on the court, you go to the field and you <laughs> home plate. So basically, you know, to be like Mike is to be like so many different people, to be like so many different things. And, but that's the thing, you know, if, if you're really, really interested in being like Mike, of course, you're going to try to play basketball once in your life. And you got to have a community around you who doesn't care if you're bad, if you're good, whatever it is, it's a way for that person to get some exercise. And to have like supportive reinforcement and basically say, okay, you know, this guy is really, really good as an athlete or no matter what. So I, I think that uh, I could also get into things about motor delays and all that stuff. But I think that overall, it's about providing a supportive environment, uh, tackling the interests of the individual that you want to interest and finding unconventional ways to engage that interest. So yeah. I know I talked a lot about all of this, but uh, it, the, uh, what do you think about my rambling? It's good stuff. Uh, and I definitely appreciate your shout out to the Wii sporting world. And again, we have no affiliation with Nintendo, but we both love Wii tennis, Wii golf, bowling, etc. And, you know, some of these, these uh, video game formats, they are a great avenue for getting physical activity. I will also say that I think the movement currently, which is something we emphasize a lot at the foundation, which is to provide not only your traditional organized sport offerings, like let's say soccer, basketball, uh, or baseball, um, but offering sports like golf and tennis, which are, are unique in the sense that they, they do offer opportunities for social behaviors and communication, but there's also an individual element to these sports where they can be played um, by individuals without uh, a necessary uh, need for communicating with others. So these can be great avenues to explore for offering physical activity trainings in an environment that's not only fun and recreational, but also one in which it's not essential to communicate with others to have success with these sports, which for some individuals with autism, that's an important 
um, it's important to have an offering like that in order to, to reach them. And we've done some research on all our golf and tennis programs, and we've had some really stellar effects so far um, because they are, they're very adaptive games. They can be played in an individual format or in more of a team setting when you start talking about playing singles and doubles in tennis. So I'm going to move, move forward now. And I just, again, I think it was a great point you made Merrick about the, about being creative with how you're integrating physical activity and really trying to meet the needs and the interests of the individual. So my second story here is on a unique application, no pun intended. It's called the Unique Care Connect application. And this was created by a junior high school student, Steve Weidman. And this is a brilliant application that was created in an effort to help autistic individuals better connect with local care providers. Steve was inspired to create this app based on two strong friendships that he developed with individuals with autism. The first was with his best friend's brother, and the second was with a fellow classmate from Bangladesh. Um, and to communicate with this individual that Steve took an interest uh, in, he actually learned how to speak some of the Bengali language to, uh, to communicate and be friends with this individual. Through his involvement with these two contacts, Weidman learned that the state of Michigan pays up to 20 hours of respite care per week per individual with a disability. However, a major issue is that many families struggle to coordinate these services with state approved caregivers. The Unique Care Connect app is similar to other apps used to connect individuals with caregivers such as babysitters or geriatric nurses. But notably, this app is specific for individuals with intellectual disabilities, which are usually not a target group on most care sites. After its projected release date in late July of 2021, this application will be free for all users, aside from medical professionals who will be charged $5 for advertising fees. In order for this app to be free, they will also rely on donations from special education communities everywhere. So we will all keep an eye on the release date of this application and we'll check it out for ourselves and try to be as supportive as possible. Question for you, Merrick, how much do you think this, uh, how much do you think individuals with autism can benefit from this app? Well, <clears throat> I think that having it as an application already uh, has a major strength um, because many individuals with autism communicate using iPads and tablets. So the idea that this is a phone app is very, very valuable already. You don't even have to say that much more. And... Uh, I'm not really all that familiar with uh, the other apps that are used to connect individuals with caregivers, as you mentioned in uh, your story. But I'm pretty sure that it's, 
I, I really welcome the advantage that any app can utilize to cross the gap or to bridge the gap between individuals with uh, limited verbal abilities, as an example, and and those who are supposed to take care or supposed to be, uh, you know, part of the social work community. I also really like that the app is free for any user. And uh, I, I think that uh, that is really, really important. Um, and it just, to me, <clears throat> I think that uh, I, I would definitely be looking forward to reviewing this for a future podcast. Definitely. To, to sort of think about, you know, because the information you're giving me is very, very important. And I can make a presumptive theory that what this app is all about is trying to fill in the voice of individuals who really want to voice their wants and needs. But um, because I don't have access to the app right now, I cannot quite say whether or not it is uh, as I would imagine it to be. So that yeah. is, I know I'm, I'm leaving the audience hanging here, but you know, sometimes it's good to leave a teaser in a story once in a while. So people could go, I wonder what this person thinks about this product. I wonder if this person thinks that this product can benefit my child, my relative, friend, whatever. I, I wonder, and I can be back in July to basically go, oh, you know what? This is one of the greatest applications that I've ever had and this is one of the greatest applications I've ever touched. And I think that uh, if you haven't downloaded the app yet, then you're cuckoo crazy. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, I think that this will be definitely something to look forward to. And I do believe that there has to be greater. How can I say it? greater bridges between those with limited verbal skills and those without, and those who have things like intellectual disabilities and those without and developmental disabilities. So I, I can see this as being very, very beneficial for individuals with autism. I just, it will have to be a product review. Yes. And they will have to provide this to us Oh, wait. Oh, I am so sorry. They're already providing it to us for free. We don't <laughs> even need a sponsor for this episode. We don't even need product placement. It's free. As, as long as the special education community uh, pays in the donations, it's a free product. So yeah. thank you so much, uh, Mr. Weidman. And wow, a junior high school student. When I was that age, I started writing very angsty 
uh, poems and lyrics about my life. And while this guy is creating an app to help people, I just moved on about how miserable I was. Thank you so much, Steve Weidman. And you get a Merrick salute, which you can't see because it's audio only. To be, to be fair, Merrick, I think the adolescent years that you're describing, I think they're, they're for a lot of people, they're, they're a more common aspect of the experience than creating a, an incredible application for the phone. Um, so, so we give props to you, uh, Steve, and uh, please keep up the good work. And like Merrick said, to be continued, uh, we will bring you guys more information on this app uh, as we get closer to the release date. So I'm now going to hand it off to you, Merrick, for some interesting, relevant, and current stories about autism. Okay. What Nate really means is that I'm going to bore you all to tears. <laughs> because this one is a doozy. This one is a biggie. But I think that this is, you know, it's made for radio. So you can listen to it and fall asleep while I'm reading about this. So uh, Thursday, February 18th was International Asperger's Day, which is the version of autism that I have. Asperger's syndrome is defined according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary as an autism spectrum disorder that is characterized by impaired social interaction, by repetitive patterns of behavior and restricted interests, by normal language and cognitive development, with poor conversational skills and difficulty with nonverbal communication, and often by above average performance in a narrow field against a general background of impaired functioning. In 2013, the DSM-5, one of the most authoritative resources on mental health disorders, decided to phase out Asperger's syndrome, instead having it become absorbed into the greater spectrum of autism. Many people like me still call ourselves as having Asperger's. I do because I think that such a vast and broad spectrum needs a greater approach to clarifying where exactly one may fall on it. One of the things I've been the most proud of since I've been working for the foundation is my three-part blog series on the history of autism. In it, I've profiled individuals like Dr. Eugene Bluler, who coined the term autism, Dr. Leo Connor, who separated autism from being a subset diagnosis for schizophrenic patients, and especially Dr. Hans Asperger, whose last name Asperger syndrome derives from. In the first article I wrote, in the mid to late 1930s, another Austrian psychiatrist laid the groundwork for deeper insight into the world of autism. Dr. Hans Asperger, whom Asperger's syndrome is named after, had met with patients diagnosed with autistic behaviors, but were of a wider group and variety from the ones Dr. Connor had seen, and had expressed greater interest in the most high-functioning patients. While these patients exhibited many symptoms of autism, their symptoms were seen as benefiting them, not disabling them. Since he was not a child psychiatrist, he followed many of these patients through their successful careers, including the Nobel Prize in Literature winner, Alfred Jelinek. Of these patients, he was convinced that autism psychopathy played a part in their successes. In fact, he even started a school for those with autism psychopathy, but the school was destroyed and the co-founder killed during the World War II bombings. 
While one would expect such research to be crucial to the total understanding of autism, none of his work was translated into English, and it took a year after Asperger's death when the English-speaking world learned about his research through British psychiatrist Lorna Wing, who published an article about him in 1981, calling his more specialized diagnosis as Asperger's syndrome and coining the term the autism spectrum. But it took a decade later for German developmental psychologist Jutta Friff to put out the first translated works of Dr. Hans, of Dr. Asperger, which ended up making Asperger's syndrome official as a universal disorder in 1994. While it was great that Dr. Hans Asperger influenced people to become their greatest selves, no matter what, more recent evidence also shows a darker side to his legacy, which I wrote about in Article 2. While learning about the origins of the autism diagnosis, I found out about the Dr. Hans Asperger, whose namesake is the condition I have been diagnosed with. During the early 1900s, eugenics was all the rage, and as, in a specific region of Europe, eugenics became the mandated governing policy by a guy with a silly mustache. Eugenics, for those who don't know, was a school of political thought ruled by intellectuals who saw the disabled as useless eaters and racial and ethnic minorities as genetically impure. It was one of the trending facets of what we call the progressive era, which lasted from the eight, late 1800s to the early 1900s. Common solutions were sterilizations, the banning of marriages, and mass institu institutionalization. Dr. Eugene Bluler, who was mentioned in part one of this blog series, as a doctor behind, behind coining the terms autism and also schizophrenia, happened to believe in this philosophy and practiced it on his schizophrenic and autistic patients. Yet one of the most controversial aspects of Dr. Hans Asperger's life is in how much he endorsed the German Nazi program. While Dr. Asperger stated that it's been defended on the idea that he was never a fan of the Nazis in Donovan and Zucker's book, In a Different Key, The Story of Autism, with contributions by Herwig Zeck, who is prolific at uncovering the level of collaboration between the psychiatric establishment and the Nazi regime, they have argued that Dr. Asperger was an enthusiastic cheerleader for Hitler. Even one of the most recent defenders of Dr. Asperger's legacy, Steve Silberman, who wrote Neurotribes about the neurodiversity movement, found himself a little bit shaken up by the revelation that Dr. Asperger condemned a girl to death who had encephalitis. It's also been theorized that Dr. Asperger's championing of certain autistic patients was due to these kinds of beliefs on the disabled. After all, if he wasn't a cheerleader, why wouldn't he be as interested in the lower functioning types as in the higher functioning ones? Looking at all the evidence, I came to a conclusion later in the article. I believe that Dr. Asperger probably felt that he needed to keep his job but within the limitations of his skepticism towards the Nazi movement, as there is no record of him ever joining the party himself. His zeal in pursuing his goals and assisting his patients is why there are records of him going above and beyond what is typically thought of as a loyal assistant to the Nazis. For example, signing every paper with a Heil Hitler, which was never required for any psychiatrist in his position. It may have even helped in the founding of the school mentioned in part one of this blog, a breakthrough in the psychiatric sciences. I think his guilt in being loyal to Hitler's ideas is why he denied the darker side of his past to a point 
of believing himself to be one of the strong dissidents to Hitler's regime. I also believe that a strong counter argument is why couldn't he leave, but it wouldn't surprise me if his studies were so regionalized and locked in that he couldn't just pack up and head to another country such as America to continue them. Because his projects, his research, his work, his, special, his specialty was so concentrated on this part of the world that he was in, he probably felt like this was his only way of making a difference and of even saving individuals from the Holocaust by, uh, by giving them a kind of boost, a kind of emotional morale boost that was very, very helpful to them and also uh, championing them so that they wouldn't be uh, captured or tortured or anything like that. So, Nate, this may be the hardest story I've ever picked up, partially due to how much of my voice has dominated this broadcast now. <laughs> Was I being fair in my final assessment of Dr. Hans Asperger? What would you say is Dr. Asperger's legacy? Well, Merrick, you certainly know how to ask the hard questions. Uh, this is uh, a complicated story and one that I appreciate you covering. I think it's, it's very interesting to cover Dr. Asperger's history. Um, and I want to, first of all, I want to say that the work that he did in discovering Asperger's as a separate condition from autism is admirable. And it really paved the way for the very important discussion on how to further classify different subtypes of autism based on, you know, differential behavioral, motor, genetic, and neurological characteristics. And there's many, you know, scholars and researchers today who feel that the identification of autism subtypes, subtypes is essential for deriving more specialized uh, training programs and intervention programs, whether it's behavioral or, or brain-based. And I personally agree with this perspective. And I think that ultimately, if we do a better job of catering intervention approaches to the needs of the individual, then success rates will be much higher. So commendable work that Dr. Asperger did in this regard, but I just wanna highlight for a second, some aspects of, as you alluded to, the darker side of his legacy, which I think are a little bit, uh, I guess maybe maybe concerning is the best word to use. Um, you know, I think that just to to take people down the history a little bit of of what was going on during that time period in in you know Nazi occupied Germany. Um, First of all, in, in 1933, the government, they ordered um, all uh, you know, people in, in positions of power, whether they were researchers, doctors, uh, scholars, even police officers, you know, if they had a, a, a Jewish relative in their bloodline, um, they basically lost their jobs and were kind of forced to migrate. Um, so you had 
um, during the next several years, hundreds of scientists and other intellectuals fleeing Germany to go to the UK or the US or other countries um, where, where they had the freedom to basically practice their profession. Um, and so during this time, the regime, they pushed, pushed out leading researchers like Albert Einstein, Hans Krebs, and even Fritz Haber, um, who had helped develop chemical weapons during World War I. Um, so I wanna highlight that there were many leaders who were, were forced to have this exodus from Germany during this time period. Um, there, was even, there were even movements um, to oppose uh, Nazi-occupied Germany during this time by some scholars. Um, and I wanna just acknowledge uh, a doctor by the name of Hans Skoll, who created a movement that was known as the White Rose Movement. Um, and they actually openly opposed and, and protested against Nazi-occupied Germany um, during this time. And, and they tried forming a community of, of medical um, workers and doctors to, to get behind this movement. Um, and it, it did end up costing them their lives. So in the midst of all this, this chaos that was going on in the region, there were definitely individuals who made pretty profound efforts to try to oppose Nazi Germany. Um, and at the same time, I will say that it's fair to acknowledge that Dr. Asperger, um, you know, he may have been uh, sort of going along with, with uh, the regime at that time for his own safety and, you know, being able to continue his line of work as effectively as possible. Um, at the same time, I think that um, some of his other behaviors were a little bit concerning, such as, you know, signing uh, his papers, essentially with, um, you know, the, the Hail Hitler on his academic papers, and also by closing lectures by saying thank, thank you to the Fuhrer. Um, so some of these gestures, they might have been a little bit excessive, um, certainly, and, and can kind of give a glimpse to maybe where some of his loyalties truly lied. So to, to follow a long story, I've definitely given a long breakdown on my perspective on this. Um, I think ultimately, Merrick, your assessment was, was very fair. You know, we commend some of the, the scientific work that was done. And at the same time, we, we do not really condone the extra measures that were taken by this individual to show uh, support to the Nazi regime. So uh, enough of me talking, I'm gonna turn it back to you. No, oh, I could have heard you talk for 30 minutes more. <laughs> that I think is probably one of the best answers I've ever heard you give. You, you went into all this context and I think that, you know, maybe I should give you harder questions. Every podcast episode, I'll do something about this moment in history or this moment in psychiatry, and you will automatically slice and dice. Wow. I, uh, you I guess slice I slice and dice the rice. <laughs> I guess I should have set the bar a little bit lower. Uh, <laughs> well, 
I'm afraid for the tough question that comes next week, but. Uh, <laughs> but we're not out of the ballpark yet. I'm glad it was satisfying for now. Okay. So here's my second story and also an interesting question to ask. So I have always had a fascination with the nonverbal individuals with autism due to the different methods of communication that come to life within their set of circumstances. I've even written an article about the history of AAC or augmentative alternative communication because I think that any way you can get someone to communicate on their own is very important as society sees communication as such an important tool. And the more we allow people to step into the limelight or to remove the duct tape from their mouths as role models for the rest of us, the better the societal habitat can be. Thus, I was eager to jump into the movie adaptation of the book known as The Reason I Jump. In 2007, a 13-year-old Japanese boy with nonverbal autism named Naoki Higashida wrote an autobiography about his experiences being nonverbal on the autism spectrum. This work so impressed well-known author David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas, his wife is Japanese and his son is nonverbal, like Mr. Higashida, that he translated the book into English in 2013, which then became a major hit. Of course, due to how the writing challenges myths about individuals with autism, the book could serve as a testament to people all over the world as a documentary. Unfortunately, that documentary was supposed to come out last year, but because of COVID-19, it got delayed and will release to the public in May of this year. However, I, have I will link a page to where you can pay $12 to watch the movie and support your local independent theater from the comfort of your own home. So far, it has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And you may ask why. Well, this review will tell you more. The movie starts out with Jim Fujiwara. Mr. Higashida did not want to appear in the film running in a field while excerpts from the book are read by Jordan O'Donoghan, a motif that recurs throughout the film. One of the things the film does very right is by having the book read as an universal experience as a viewer follows six individuals with nonverbal or a very lim limited verbal ability, autism from all over the world and teaches you about how they communicate, what they're thinking and how the outside world either helps or hinders them. It shows that the world to be an individual with autism is not seen the same way as someone without and how cool that is. You also get some insight as to why Mr. Mitchell wanted to translate the text in the first place and it is all revelatory. You will definitely get an authentic experience watching this movie and you don't even need to have read the book to understand it. I've never read the book and I did. I would also say that no matter where you fall on the spectrum, it is instantly relatable. The moral of the book slash movie, don't misjudge people based on their verbal ability. They know a lot more than you think they do. So I'll give it two thumbs up. Okay, Nate, through your research, do you have any myths about nonverbal autism that you would like to debunk? First of all, excellent review. And I know I'm looking forward to seeing this myself. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will get a lot of enjoyment out of it also. So please uh, take a look at this documentary. Um, so a couple of myths that I'd like to debunk. 
Uh, first of all, there's a common perception that, you know, functional problems of speech, that they're indicative of low intelligence and poor cognitive functioning. And the research on this shows that this is simply, uh, you know, it's a myth. Um, there are measures that can be done, um, the universal nonverbal intelligence test, and also the Raven's progressive matrices. These are tools that can assess cognitive functioning in the absence of verbal speech. And the evidence shows that there is, um, you know, there are, are many people who do not have um, verbal abilities who score very highly on these cognitive assessments and are not at a deficit in that regard. Another one is that there is this uh, inability or this, um, you know, this lack of ability to, to hold a conversation. And this is what we've seen is that when platforms that allow for, you know, written communication or communication through, through applications, um, augmentative uh, communication supports, that uh, when this is available, that individuals who lack verbal abilities, that they really are able to hold a conversation and they actually have a strong interest in doing so as well. Um, you know, and I think a documentary like this is so important for alluding to that fact that just because the ability to verbally communicate is not there, it doesn't mean that there's the lack of motivation or desire to communicate with other people. And that's why raising awareness on this topic is so vital because, you know, it's, it's a very sad thing to think about that an individual who's nonverbal, that they may not have certain social interactions that they actually crave just because the um, other people in their lives are not aware you know, that they do have this, this voice that is just, that they're just willing to bring out, uh, but lacking the opportunity to do so. So just a couple of things that I'd like to hit on there. Um, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Merrick. Um, do you have anything to add on this topic? Well, I think that, uh, yes, I think that individuals who have limited what what the documentary presented to me is that you know neurology is very fascinating it's not a simple one-way street just because you may not have these skills does not mean that you don't have these skills too mm -hmm. it's basically that you know you may lack the ability to communicate effectively verbally, but you can probably write a sonnet or you can write a poem or you can write anything. It's not a one-way street. Even you, just because, and part of that is due to our reliance on communication, on communication as a sign of intelligence and communication as a sign of what separates humans from animals, but animals still communicate. So I, I, I think that overall, it's that kind of emphasis 
And it's the kind of emphasis that if someone is a little bit different or has a different understanding of things, that they must be stupid. It's, it's all a part of what I would call to be maybe the darker side, uh, not to go back to a topic here, but the darker side of how society has treated the disabled as people not worth of love or care or people who are just basically animals. And that's not exactly what it is. Um, I, I have uh, mentioned before uh, to my boss that I would love to do an interview with someone who was nonverbal because then it would feel like, you know, you're looking into someone, you're opening someone's door. You're looking into someone's soul and you're finding out that people are not as one-to-one as sometimes our lazy assumptions about people tends to be. And and we do have plenty of lazy assumptions, you know, lazy generalities, but yeah, uh, people who are nonverbal, you know, they have the same interests, they have the same uh, hobbies, they have the same whatever as any one of us. And, uh, they may be different or the like, but they're equal. They're the same as us. They just don't have the same ability to verbalize. And that's, that's it. That really is it. You know? Yeah. So I think that that is really, when you talked about uh, top cognitive abilities and intelligence, that is definitely something that I think has made the nonverbal autism community uh, over the years one what became one of the most misunderstood communities to actually people, I think that people uh, in a greater way acknowledge the intelligence of these individuals than in the past because of the way technology has sort of caught up with them. And now they can text, they can basically, you know, they can uh, type, they can do whatever. And it's, it's because we all have these portable computers also that that's been very, very helpful. So, yeah, I, I definitely do believe that there are myths that, uh, that I'm happy to debunk. Very well stated. Good stuff today. Yep. But before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. Because of that, we will be seeing you again in March with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. So what do we say to end each broadcast? I'm ready when you are. What do we say to end each broadcast, Pinky? And it's not we're going to take over the world. It's for... I wish that I could fly so high. Oh, 
like a butterfly I fly into the air so high Oh, like a butterfly A moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air So high Oh, like a butterfly Like a bird I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight And even when it pours can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar Will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I, I could, could fly, fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high Oh, 